Last week we spoke of our joining in on Israel's hope for the coming Messiah. Now our hope still rests on God's promise that Christ will return in glory. On the second Lord's Day of Advent, we light the second purple candle to remind us that the Messiah was born to bring peace to the world as the Prince of Peace to Emmanuel. In Matthew's first chapter, verses 18 through 25, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to bear a son, and you shall call his name do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is, which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus purchased our peace and saved us from his sins, from our sins through his blood upon the cross. He himself is our peace. He brought us who were far off, near, and he has reconciled us to God and one another. Israel waited for peace. That could only be found in Jesus Christ. As we wait for Christ to return, we celebrate this peace, yet we will also await the eternal peace that Jesus will bring with him in the new heavens and new earth, the second Eden. There will be there we will experience perfect shalom. This morning we will join in. Let us join with them this morning in saying the Apostles' Creed is printed in your bulletin. Christian, what do you believe? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his holy Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Frank for this time. Miss Jim Bennington. It's Billy Griggs. Our Father, as we open your word this morning, as we hear your word read, and then as we dwell on those words, we pray that you would teach us. John Sartell cannot teach so that it will make any difference in our lives. So, Father, once more, we cast ourselves upon your grace and upon your mercy. And where we're children, we're your children asking you to teach us for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.
The Old Testament lesson this morning comes from the fifth chapter of Micah, beginning with the second verse. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and the shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now, <clears throat> excuse me, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The New Testament lesson comes from the second chapter of Luke, beginning with the first verse. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, to the, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. And this is the word of the Lord. The wonder, beauty, and pain of providence. What is the scene in the scripture we just read from Luke? Mary is in the seventh or eighth month of her pregnancy. She is with Joseph in Nazareth. They are preparing to walk to Bethlehem from Nazareth. This trip was forced upon them because Caesar had ordered a census to be taken in all the provinces for the purpose of taxation. Bethlehem was the city of origin for both the family of Mary and the family of Joseph. And this taxation had to take place where the family had originated. Bethlehem. Bethlehem was 80 miles by the way the crow flies from Nazareth. 80 miles by straight line. However, that straight line would have taken them through Samaria. Most every time that Joseph and Mary made that trip, they were like all the other Jews in Galilee. They would move southeast. They would not go through Samaria. They would have traveled through the Jezreel Valley down to the Jordan River Basin. They would have traveled south to the city of Jericho. And there they would have began a climb of 30 500 feet to Bethlehem. That route would cover almost 100 miles. 
Now, obviously, I've never been pregnant. But most of you ladies have been. And you have known, and we as husbands have heard about the discomfort of being eight and nine months pregnant. Now, some say, you can imagine that Mary and Joseph walked the entire route. The pictures you see on cards a lot is Mary on a donkey and Joseph walking. But no matter, the discomfort and inconvenience would have been significant. You can see Mary preparing. She didn't have a halo around her head. She didn't have some kind of otherworldly glow that spoke of her holiness. In fact, she probably was a lot like us. She probably had some choice words for Caesar Augustus in the governor Quirinius. You see them making that long walk. Trip probably lasted between two, between a week and two weeks. We have a tendency to, to sterilize such scenes with what I call a, a Sunday school sanitation. We sanitize a scene by imagining Joseph and Mary carried along with no pain, no inconvenience. Angels filled the muddy places on the road. There's no dust and no grime, no dirty feet. There's no sweat and smell of perspiration. Think about it. Have you ever received a Christmas card that depicted Mary and Joseph covered with dust of the road, muddy feet, dirt under the fingernails? You hadn't gotten a card like that. Well, in reality, that's what it was. There was dust and grime. There were clothes soaked with sweat. The journey ended with that long climb. 3,500 feet. They did not have L.L. Bean sleeping bags. And they probably camped in the open air. What was it the angel said? We read it last week in our first Advent reading. What was it the angel said to Mary? Mary, you are highly favored by God among women. I can imagine Mary wondered what the angel meant in the middle of this trip. This is how I'm highly favored. However, being theoretical theologians, we think there's a real beauty about this scene. Why must they make this trip? We know, we read it this morning from Micah, we know that God had said that the Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, was to be born in Bethlehem, in the town of David. Look at it in Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, too insignificant, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Now, Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. 
He lived 700 years before Jesus. How did he know where the Messiah was to be born? How did he know that? 700 years early. Where were your, let me ask you a question. Where were your great, 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 great grandchild be born? Your grandchild, that many times removed, 700 years from now, where will he be born? You look at it, you know, who in the world can say? There's only one way. God told Micah. Question. How did God know? When we see God at work in human history, we call it, theologians call it, Providence, God's providence. The English word providence comes from two Latin words, pro, meaning before, and video, video, to see. To see before. Is that what God's providence is? Does he simply look down through history, see what we will do, see what will happen, and write it down and say, that's it. That's my providence. That's not what scripture says. Let's take a minute to think about this. It's really important. Look at Psalm 33.10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. You have two different counsels here. You have two different sets of plans. You have the plan of man in verse 10. And then in verse 11, you have the plans of God. It is the plan of God that trumps the plan of men. He frustrates our plans. His plans cannot be moved. In Jeremiah 29, 11, we read about those, that providence. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is on every page of scripture. I just went through and, and just picked several passages. Skip down to, to, to Ephesians where he's speaking of our salvation. In verse 5, he predestined us for the adoption through Jesus Christ according to what? According to the purpose of our plans? No, according to the purpose of his will. Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according, according to what? According to his purpose, his plan. Look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time. Look at verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, the plan of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. God was not looking down. That does not picture God looking down and saying, okay, what, what's John Sartell going to do down here? And, and then I'll write that down as, as my plan. He was looking at his plan. As an architect looks at plans, he's known, he was looking at his plan that had been drawn up in eternity by the Trinity. And he was speaking from that plan. He was revealing to Micah the details of his plan. That plan is called God's providence. 
Now, we may look at this and say, yes. Yes, that was God's providence. Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. But we don't think about that providence as governing the details of our daily lives. But while we're on the subject, let's think about that. Look at Matthew 10, 29. How detailed is his providence? Look at verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, two two sparrows. That's insignificant. They're insignificant. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. Do you believe that? You say, if I'd held up this book, if I'd held up the Bible and said, do you believe scripture? You'd have said, yes. I believe scripture. You really believe it? Yes. All of us have seen a dead bird in our yard. Look, you've seen a dead bird in your yard. That bird cannot fall apart from the will of your father. He says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. People, that's detailed. That's what he's saying. It's not just in this grand providence that spans over us. It's in all the details of life. James 4, 13. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're like a mist. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. There is a wonder as we stare at such providence, just as we marvel at the complexity, the physics of the complexity of the physical universe. We must wonder at the design and complexity of this providence. You know, the the scientists are just scratching the surface of the complexity of this of this universe. Who can, who, who of us, who of our scientists can get their, wrap their minds around a million, not solar systems, a million galaxies out there. The detail of that. All the scientific detail of that. So complex. And we wonder at it. But let me tell you what we're reading here the complexity of his providence, the complexity of his plan, the detail of his plan makes the complexity of the universe look like kindergarten stuff. When my brother was killed, this really came home to me. I remember the specific place and time. It was at, after midnight of that January the first night. Now I just walked out of the hospital in West Memphis, Arkansas. And it was really the first time I had been alone. And I looked at the stars as I was standing next to my car. And I was about to say, why? Why, Lord, why? It seemed so senseless. 
But I did not say that because I was looking at the stars. I was remembering that the greatest scientific minds of the 20th century had just scratched the surface. And then I said out loud, so am I asking about the reasons for your providence in this awful day of January 1, 1992? And I stopped and said, Lord, if you explained why, I still probably would not understand. And so my question is, are Mike and Nate all right? And I already knew the answer to that question. I knew where they were. His complexity. If sometimes we are faced and we do ask the question, why? From his infinite mind to our finite minds, we probably wouldn't understand the answer. There is wonder. If you can look at God's providence and not wonder, you're not seeing his providence. But there's also a great beauty to God's providence. Go back to Mary in her difficult trek to Bethlehem at a most inopportune time. Go back Go back to those who would rail against Caesar Augustus as if he was in control. When the, when the Magi came to Jerusalem seeking the new king whom somehow they knew had been born. And the question was asked, where, where is the Messiah to be born? Where did the, the rabbis go? They went to, we read it right here. Look in Matthew 2, 1 through 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from, from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. And Herod the king heard this. He was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So here's the question. They knew it. Those rabbis knew exactly where to go. They told him. They didn't say, let's go study this for a month. They knew immediately. They told him, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be a shepherd for my people Israel. This is so beautiful. Since the revelation was made 700 years before Caesar Augustus was born, then God was the one reigning over Caesar, not Caesar over God. Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man in the world. He was the supreme commander of the Roman military machine. Do you know what that was like? In the history of the world, there had never been such an army. The forces of Alexander the Great had been known for their cunning, for their great speed. There had not been a, a more territory conquered faster than what Alexander the Great did. But the Roman army was known for, the, for its monolithic, crushing weight of its power. I love the way that Luke did this. Think. 
Think about it with me. Who initiated, who's in that first chapter of Luke, who initiated? Who initiated what was happening? It was God that sent the angel to Zechariah, telling Zechariah that he and Elizabeth would finally have a child in their old age. Then he sent the angel Gabriel. God sent the angel Gabriel to Mary. God initiating, God doing, God initiating. But how does the second chapter begin? It's in stark contrast. It moves from God to Caesar. He becomes the initiator. Look at that verse. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. You can see Luke, the erudite doctor, interviewing Mary as she told him about the conception and the birth. She said, you know, I, I was in Nazareth. And Caesar issued a decree for all the provinces. And we had to go back to our hometowns to register for this, for this census. Luke made note of that. And from those notes, he would write an opening to one of the most famous literary passages in history. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Luke would have enjoyed reading the words of Charles Swindoll about this. He captured it. He captured what Luke was saying. You say, you know what? I've seen this before. It's on the bottom of your scripture sheet. You say, I've seen You've seen it almost every Christmas since I've been here. Because every Christmas I quote this and I use this. And I'll quote it again next year. It will be on a scripture sheet again. Who could have cared about the birth of a child while the world was watching Rome in all of her splendor? Bounded on the west by the Atlantic, on the east by the Euphrates, on the north by the Rhine and Danube, on the south by the Sahara Desert. The Roman Empire was as vast as it was vicious. Political intrigue, racial tension, Increased immorality and enormous military might occupied everyone's attention and conversation. Palestine existed under the crush of Rome's heavy boot. All eyes were on Augustus, the cynical Caesar, who demanded a census so as to determine a measurement to enlarge taxes. So at that time, who was interested in a couple making a long trip south from Nazareth? What could possibly be more important than Caesar's decision in Rome? Who cared about a Jewish baby born in Bethlehem? God did. Without realizing it, mighty Augustus was only an errand boy for the fulfillment of Micah's prediction. Augustus was a pawn in the hand of Jehovah, a piece of lint on the pages of prophecy. Luke would have said he got it. Luke was shouting into the first century. When Luke wrote this, Rome was killing Christians. Christians were dying in the Colosseum. Luke was shouting into the first century that God was in control, not Caesar. Who are the most powerful people in the world today? President of the United States? Putin? The Chinese chairman? 
whatever names come to your mind, they don't sit on God's throne. They're not in control. The beauty of God's providence. It's in his hands. There's a wonder and a beauty about God's providence, but there's also pain, people. We think that God's providence must always direct us to easy paths, to journeys that are made with ease. One time, I called my father and asked him to meet with me because I was making a decision that I knew would take me through a very, very, very painful time. And it turned out to be far more painful than I had even anticipated. And as we talked over lunch when we met, I said, Dad, I said, I've always thought that if you acted wisely, you stayed out of trouble. I said, I think I'm acting wisely. I think I'm making the right decision. But if I make this decision, I'm going to get in a whole heap of trouble. And you know it. And Dad was not very reaffirming. He said, yes, you're right. You are going to get in a heap of trouble. And it will be hard. I said, is that wise? He said, from my perspective, it's the wisest thing you can do. And then he said this, John, you've read Fox's book of martyrs. I said, yes, sir. He said, do you think they acted unwisely? Do you think they got burned at the stake because they acted unwisely? And I looked at him. I said, you're really not encouraging right now. God's providence. Sometimes it's most painful. In God's providence, after Mary was pregnant, there was an arduous trip to Bethlehem. There was a birth in a barn. There was the threat of Herod so that they had to run for their lives. Know this, that wherever, wherever God is at work, Wherever Jesus goes, you can be certain that the heroes of this world will be there. Satan will not be far behind. Personal pain and trouble can blind us to the providence of God. When bad things happen, we tend to think that history is out of God's control. If God had happened, I don't know how many times, if God was, if God was on his throne, this wouldn't have happened to me. He wouldn't have let it. How do we first discover Herod's evil intent? You go back and you read in Matthew, God told the Magi to go home another way. God told Joseph to pack it in and go to Egypt. In fact, we read that Joseph left in the middle of the night. He was running for his life. But all that says is Herod's actions did not catch God off guard. God, God knew. Magi, don't go back to Jerusalem. Herod's got evil intent. God knew it. 
In fact, we read it there in Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. This is quoting from an Old Testament passage. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. That's Bethlehem. That's where Bethlehem. A voice was heard in Bethlehem. Weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, that was the home of Rachel. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The children of Bethlehem had been killed. Matthew said it was fulfillment of that passage. No, God was not caught by surprise. It was inside of his providence and his plan. We live in a fallen world, people. It's hard, but we must say it. The same providence that delivered Joseph and Mary from Jesus and Jesus from the hand of Herod, that same providence allowed the babies in Bethlehem to be killed. It's on Herod, not on God. We live in a fallen world. God was in the midst of redeeming that world and saving us. But God was not absent. His plan was still in effect. God allowed evil to occur. We see this all through scripture. Joseph's brothers, they sold him into slavery. His very brothers sold him into slavery. Went home and told their dad that he had been killed by a wild animal. Cruel. Years later, God had used Joseph to save the known world from famine. And his brothers were before him and they, they knew that Joseph's going to take his revenge. And what did Joseph say? But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What enabled Joseph to make it through the hard times when he was unjustly sold, when he was unjustly convicted in Egypt, when he spent several years in jail in Egypt? Why could he stand? He understood that God's plan had not been foiled. It had not been laid aside. We cannot let the pain and trouble in our lives blind us to the providence of God. When we say God must not be in control, this evil would have never happened. That concludes that conclusion robs us of the one truth that will hold us up. When Joseph had to leave his job in Nazareth to go to Bethlehem, God was on the throne. When Mary had to travel so near her delivery date, God was on his throne. When they had no place but a barn to stay, God was on his throne. When they had to flee to Egypt, God was on his throne. When the Magi brought those gifts, God was on his throne providing for their trip to Egypt. What pain and darkness have you tried to forget during this present Advent season? There's several things in my life that have been trying even to this hour. And what do we do? We look at the Advent and say, you know what, I'm going to put those in the closet until after I get through Christmas. I'm not going to let it spoil my celebration. Pull it out. Get it out of the closet. Look it right in the eye and know this. God is on his 
throne. He reigns. Caesar wasn't the ruler of all history and neither was Herod. Any tragic events in our lives this year or last year, they cannot be the rulers of our history. God is and God alone. Your future, if you know Jesus Christ, your future is in his hands. And those hands are nail scarred. They died for you. We'll have years when we face heart-rending agony. We live in a fallen world. There'll be a time that God's going to take Herod, the Herods of this world away forever. There's going to be a day when we will have no more sin nature even in our own lives. But until then, we live in a fallen world. And yet in this very fallen world, God That was the reason for the incarnation. God would not let the darkness have absolute sovereignty. His providence involves our salvation, our very salvation. His providence involves our sanctification. His providence involves our discipline. His providence involves the confrontation and judgment of sin in our culture. What was the point of this, the providence? What was the point of this providence of wonder and beauty and pain? What was the point? An awful cross, but it was a cross that saved us. And what is the end of this providence? An empty tomb in glory. As we come to the table, our hymn is O Little Town of Bethlehem. Let's stand together as we sing. As we prepare to come to the table, please join me in the prayer of preparation that's printed in your bulletin. Our Father, I am not worthy to come to this table. I am constant in my sin. It is ever before me. Yet it is in knowing and confessing my unworthiness that I become worthy of the bread and wine. You have provided this saving meal only for sinners. I lay aside any claim of righteousness by words I have said or deeds I have done. I claim only his body and blood for my righteousness. Give me confidence by your spirit that though my sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. So fill me with the assurance of justification through his sacrifice, that I can say with Paul, who can bring a charge against me? May the reality of this salvation rise within my heart so that an ever-increasing gospel love and joy permeates my life. I ask in his grace and for his glory. Amen.